David, thanks very much for joining me here today. I know you have you've a lot on your plate, so I really appreciate you taking the time to to come out here. It's a lot of people in the Irish powerlifting scene may not know who you are, even though you've been around for for quite a bit of time. I'm not calling you old there now or anything, but but if you could do me a favor and if you could break down your athletic an academic background, I suppose, and lead us into the conversation that we're going to have here today. I, I'd really appreciate it, kind of who you are, what you do and what you're about. Yeah, um, thanks very much for the invite, first and foremost. In terms of in the powerlifting scene, while I still train kind of a lot of powerlifting style, I probably I haven't been on the platform since God, 2019, I think was the last mm-hmm. time, and November 2019 in Limerick, I believe. Um, but even at that stage, I was never, I was a mediocre powerlifter. Mm-hmm. Um um, but yeah, competed in powerlifting a couple of times under the, the, the IPF during um, college and, and after college. And but I've always had an interest in, in, in strength sports and strength in general. Um, in recent times, I've got up the hobby of lifting stones. Is, is the new thing going around mm. Ireland? Lifting some some stones. But yeah, from an academic perspective, I'm currently an assistant professor of sport and exercise science at Dublin City University at DCU here, and I look after a lot of the strength and conditioning modules and, and kind of head up the strength and conditioning teaching across our, our, our undergraduate and postgraduate courses here and um, also then research in a, a similar area. Um, my research looks at sex differences in, in exercise, so kind of sex differences in response to exercise with a focus on resistance training and more so down the side of the female athlete. Um, a lot of what I would look at is Essentially, do we need to do different physical preparation or strength and conditioning strategies for female athletes? And that's a wide range of, of topics is covered there, looking at the effect of the menstrual cycle, contraceptives. But just in general, do females need to train differently to males is the, the broader research question. Um, so from yeah, my athletic background, I suppose, traditional kind of upbringing, martial arts, Gaelic games is predominant in the younger years and then strength sports in the um, last few years. I did recently do a high rocks. I was talked into that. Oh wow! Um, okay, which was <laughs> to transition to that was quite um, a, a big change, I must say. Um, but yeah, so that's uh, my interest is in all things muscle. Essentially, what makes how do we get people bigger, stronger, um, and especially from a health side as well, the importance of, of muscle and strength for longevity and, and healthy aging and, and stuff like that. And then from the academic side, as I said, my that's my research interest in sex differences. And then I am an applied practitioner, so I'm a strength and conditioning coach currently with uh, Kildare Senior Ladies, heading up their SNC for this for this year. And then I'm one of the co-directors of the Irish Strength and Conditioning Network then as well from a professional side as well. Amazing. Yeah, so you have your handful, absolutely. And I was going to comment that a background in Gaelic games doesn't lead for a very bright academic or athletic future for anyone from Kildare. So, so definitely diversifying the their portfolio is 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 pretty good. Um, so yeah, a, unless, a huge... unless you're on the lady side, the lady side, the ladies, are, all the ladies are flying. Yeah, yeah. Oh, there the you men's go. side, not so much. <laughs> I I hear that's that's in large part due to the SNC. Is that right? Oh well, I'm only in this year. <laughs> I, I I come in when they're on top. That's that's the secret to being a good SNC coach. Come in when they're already good and just don't there make them worse. <laughs> that's fair enough the you, you've also correct me if i'm wrong you've done a bit of research on i suppose aging populations and the necessity of resistance training from that point of view as well isn't that right that's just a, a, i suppose a point of interest for me it's not really relevant to this conversation but but what i like about it, it seems like the scope of your research or the the intent behind your research seems to be a lot of removing barriers to participation for maybe previously marginalized populations such as maybe 
the female athletes or older athletes, which I think does have a huge, it does have a huge kind of supposed part to play to this conversation. And so you, you spoke on the research that you're, you're currently doing that you have done in the past on gender based differences in like athletic training, athletic development. And in, in the scope of the conversation we're about to have about the, I suppose, the rationale behind sex-based categorization in sports and accommodating those who may not fit in very traditional uh, gender roles or, or sex categorizations, do you find there's been much of a difference or did you expect much of a difference in, in the needs of female athletes uh, compared to their male counterparts? Did you expect much of a difference or have you found much of a difference? So... That is, it's a very broad question, I, I mm. suppose. And just from the outset, um, I think it's good to have some operational definitions. So I I study sex differences, essentially. So when I speak, I speak from a place of examining biological sex. So that's why I'll often use sex-based terminology, um, male, female, uh, in that way. And when I refer to, say, woman, I'm referring to biological female in, in that context mm. um, is um, the, the terminology I'll use. So, um, do I expect a big difference in female athletes? So that was the question, I suppose, with the PhD was was coming in from a women's rugby perspective and um, looking at do women rugby players need to um, train differently to male counterparts? Because if we look at the history of sports science research, people will say, you know, there's no research done in females, which it's wrong. Um, we, if you look at some of like, um Costello paper or from Emma Cowley's work, the you know, the 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 sex gap in sports science research, you will see that females are arguably underrepresented in the sports science literature. But you know, the estimates are around say thirty to forty percent of participants, sports science participants have been female. So to say that there's no data on females is is completely wrong. There is plenty of data. Mm. Is there much in the way of elite women female athletes no there's not much but there's not much in the way of elite athletes across the entire um, spectrum of sports science research when we look at then strength hypertrophy these kind of skeletal muscle power measures that i'm interested in there's even less again um so you do have a, a small evidence base arguably and we, we are trying to improve that through improving or increasing the amount of females we have in, in sports science research but that was what I was interested. If then we're looking at historically, most of the research and practices adopted by coaches were devised in male populations, well, would then females potentially need different differing um, mm. pr- uh, approaches? And I suppose the first way I tend to frame that is, and how I came to it was, when we look at males and females, they are different. Um in a lot of different structures. So there's this term sexual dimorphism, which essentially describes that in any given species, there are mean differences between the males and females of that species. And we now dimorphism is probably the wrong term, an outdated term, because that looks at a very, you know, black and white, where it is a spectrum. Um, we mm. will see in terms of the, the variability within males and within females. But on average, there are distinct mean differences between males and females in um, any given species, in anatomical structures, physiological structures, in, you know, we see it in the immune system, we see it in neurology, we see it in a lot of different structures within the body. So when I started to look at that, we have to then identify, well, what are the different um, potential different sex differences that can lead to a, 
a difference in sporting performance. Mm-hmm. Um, so very good paper summarized this. Um, Tommy Lumberg and Hilton back a couple of years ago looked at this. And if we take some of the ones that pertain to sport, we know on average in untrained and moderately trained males and females, if we take the average untrained and moderately trained males and females, we will see that males have on average 45% more lean body mass, 30% less fat mass. We see that they have more upper body mass than females are more and more lower body. When we look at upper body and lower body strength, we see grip strength, for example, on average is 57% higher in males. Knee extension strength is 54% higher. So people tend to look at the muscle and the strength straight off, and they can have um, big impacts, obviously, on sport. But it goes much beyond that. When we look at bones, males have longer and stronger bones. Mm. Tendons, males have significantly higher um, tendon force capacity and tendon stiffness. VO2 max, both absolute and relative, is much higher in males. Absolute is 50% higher, and then relative value is 25% higher. Cardiovascular function, we see the size of the heart, the stroke output, hemoglobin concentration in the blood, higher in males. Now, that leads to what is coined the um, male advantage in sport. I don't particularly like the term male advantage because... Mm that puts a value on it. Um, I just, it's a, it's a difference. It's a sex difference in sport. Um, but you say, well, okay, there's these physiological differences. What do they manifest in then when we look at the performances in sport? Mm. Well, if we take of say January of this year, there was a very good paper um, recently out in a few last few months, looking at the biological basis of, of sex differences in sport. And they kind of looked at, you know, the best performing world records, best performance, between males and females. So those who are at the very upper echelons at the elite level, when we look at the 100-meter sprint, 9.5% difference in favor of males. Jumping, males, you know, are jumping 15 to near 20% further than and higher in jumping sports than females. We see it in um, weightlifting. It's, you know, 20 to 30% um, difference there in the, the records that males are doing compared to females. And that's across all the the weight categories. So in general, when you look at males and female sport, there is a 10 to maybe 30% difference in ability, world records between males and females favoring the males. So, you know, this is just saying that at the elite level, males are stronger, more powerful, lift heavier, jump further, run faster, that kind of thing. So what I'm bringing, and this will sound like I'm just saying, oh, well, males are much better than females in, in sport and being kind of misogynistic. What this led me to think is, well, okay, what are the facts? We see that males and females are different. We see that when we look at those differences manifest to significantly differences, difference um, outcomes in performance. Mm-hmm. But historically, um, much of the research and methods for athletic development were devised in male cohorts. So if males and females are so different or they're significantly different in anatomical and physical structures and how to perform in sport, well, then it's not unreasonable to think, well, maybe females require different physical preparation approaches than um, male participants. And please stop me at any point if I'm rambling here. And to, no, no, crack on. Yeah, 100%. But where that went to, I was like, okay, do they need to approach training differently? It's reasonable then to assume, well, maybe they need to train differently because they are different. 
And that brings me then to, well, what potentially could be a sex difference in how we train and coach people? When we write a training program, the way I think about it anyway, you do your needs analysis. You assess where the athlete is here and where they need to be to perform well in their sport. Mm-hmm. And you, all we're doing as coaches, we're trying to get the athlete from A to B or get them up along that they're getting closer to where we need them to be to be an elite performer or to be for themselves to improve the performance. So that's very clear. We First thing you do, do your needs analysis. And from that needs analysis, you say, well, this is where I need to get them to. So essentially, you have a list of adaptations that you want to achieve. Mm-hmm. Um, your very first thing is you're clear on your adaptation. Well, adaptation doesn't have a sex dimension. Hypertrophy is hypertrophy. Strength is strength. Speed is speed. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is no sex dimension there. Once you're clear on the adaptation you're trying to achieve, the next thing you go to is, well, what is the principle I must put in place that drives that adaptation? Mm-hmm. Again, no sex dimension. Progressive overload is progressive overload. You know, specificity is ubiquitous. So there is no sex dimension to all these principles. So you're clear now on what the adaptation you're trying to achieve is. You know the principle you need to um, apply to drive that adaptation. And there is no sex dimension to either of these. The final thing you do in your program then is, well, what methods can I put in place that drive a principle that or that apply a principle that drives an adaptation? And that's the only you know, level of a program design where maybe, okay, there could be a, a sex dimension here. You know what I mean? And what do we manipulate as co- coaches? It all comes down to muscle contraction. Everything is muscle contraction. And mm-hmm. it's, you know, what are the force requirements we put on the muscle? How often do we make them do that? What speed do we do it? What joint angles, etc. Well, it's all muscle contraction. And how we manipulate how the muscles contract will cause a signal, which causes an adaptation to occur. And as coaches, what do we manipulate? We manipulate volume, intensity, you know, time, type, the type of exercise to do. So even the fit principle at a basic level, frequency, intensity, time, and type of exercise. So the argument comes then, which of those should be different between males and females? And when I go through it, oh, people say frequency. Females can handle higher frequency than males. Yeah, I, I think we've anyone's works as a coach like they can. But my argument is, is it a sex difference or a load difference? So, for example, if you start out in powerlifting and, you know, you get your first few weeks over a first couple of months, maybe you can squash, I don't know, 100 kilograms um, or 80 kilograms or whatever. If you have someone that can squat 80 kilograms, I would be confident you could probably have them squatting three, four times a week and they'll recover fairly okay if you're jake brennan that's squatting i don't know what's jake squatting these days 400 kilos plus yeah plus, I, something yeah. mental anyway yeah i i think jake squats every what 12 to 14 days hmm. um because if he tries to do a higher frequency you can't it's the absolute load is important so even if we got jake at 80 percent of his one rm or someone that has a 100 kilo squat and they're doing 80 percent 80% for both of those individuals is 80% of their max. Mm. 80% though in terms of the absolute load it'll put on the likes of Jake Brennan or someone with a 400 kilogram squat is not the same as what it'll put on um, someone with 100 kilograms, 1RM. So the weaker person in that place, in that case, will probably be able to do a higher frequency because, you know, it's not the same absolute load. So even though it's the same relative load, it's not the same absolute. And you tend to see is when you start working with, you know, 
people as they get stronger and stronger they can't do the same high frequency of high intensities uh, mm. as often they have to do more lighter days they can't go as heavy as often so my argument is we know that females are significantly weaker and i don't say that from a judgment point that's an objective point in terms of force output so the absolute load on their system isn't as great so my hypothesis would be well is it a sex true sex difference or is it an absolute load difference because yeah. as you see them get stronger and stronger they can't do that same frequency um so but even that um people would say intensity then you'd hear this thing females should you know can handle higher intensities and or lower intensities higher weight and males should do higher intensities lower reps and this kind of thing again that's nonsensical just because i have the ability to be good at something doesn't mean that that's how i should train so if i'm a marathon runner and i want to get stronger i don't get stronger by running just because i'm good at it mm. um the principle is specificity and progressive overload you train them for the adaptation not because of their physiology so I do a good example of if myself and Mo Farah were competing for, or if Mo rang me up and uh, there's every year there's this really wholesome sporting event. It's the World Dog Surfing Championships held in San Diego. <laughs> Fantastic. You and your dog on a surfboard. There, there is nothing more wholesome than that sport. But if Mo rang me up and he said, David, me and you are going to go compete in the, the Dog Surfing Championships. I think everyone could agree that myself and Mo Farah have drastically different physiology and anatomical structures, and we're completely different when we look mm. at our physiology. But what would we do for both of us? We wouldn't say, Mo, this is your physiology, so you're going to train running to do it. David, you're built to be kind of strong. You're going to lift to do it. You would say, here you are now. This is the requirements of the sport. That's where we'll get you to. And we base it upon the needs analysis of the requirement of the sport. We don't take our physiology into a huge amount of account to say, because your physiology is so different, you can't train the same. We'd probably mm. end up doing similar training because we both need to get to the same outcome. So just because male and female physiology is so different doesn't necessarily mean that we should train it differently um, is where I'm getting to there. Mm. So the intensity, you know, you train for what the adaptation is you want and the principle of intensity is the same. The types of exercise, are there exercises that are female exercises and male exercises? No, I don't think mm. so. The type of exercise, or oh, could potentially females be more used to, you know, or better suited to aerobic style exercises, higher reps, maybe. Maybe, but again, the goal is the goal. If the goal is to lift heavy weight, we need them training with heavy weight. So that all boils down to say, I don't think there is a strong rationale that your programming needs to be different for females compared to males with some minor nuances in, mm. in there. And because that is to say, when we train people, yes, their biological sex should be a factor we consider, but it should not be the factor. You know, totally. we work at an individual level. We wouldn't mm. just say, you know, Connor, you're a man, this is the way men should train. Um, you'd say, no, yes, you're a man, but we'd say, we've assessed you and this is where individually, you know, we see you're, you're weak and where you're strong and where you can improve. So that's it. Yes, we would take into fact some of the minor differences and nuance we need to consider. When we look at um, repetitions done at submaximal load, we tend to see that females on average can do more repetitions than males. Mm. Um, so at 90%, you know, I think males can do, uh, off the top of my head, James Nuzo and James Steele have a, um, a good meta-analysis that's just come out updating this. But I think, say, off the top of my head, at 90% of 1RM, I think males can do 80% the amount of reps that females can do. 
Um, and then 70, 80 levels out, and then at like 60%, it's the same thing. Males can't do as much reps with that load that uh, females can. Mm. Now, again, I'd argue how much of it is sex difference, how much is absolute load difference. Mm. But within that, what does that mean from a practical perspective? Well, it means that percentage-based training is not the same across both males and females. Because mm-hmm. if I give both of you, you know, sets of five at, well, say a set of three at 90%, that puts a male on average closer proximity to failure than it does a female. So that's why with females, maybe RIR, reps and reserve or RPE, RPE-based training is a bit more um, suited. That said, or you account for the rep range and your percentage in terms of what proximity to failure you want. Um, that said, females on average tend to undershoot the RAR, RP, in terms mm. of they have more, they need to go a bit heavier um, and they're, they're less likely to push themselves. It's maybe because on average they're less ego-driven, um, but this it could be a way. So I think how you program is not all that different. How you coach them at an interpersonal level might be different, but mm. that is on average because I have to stress that's on average between the sexes. Within the sexes, there's a wide range of variation and that needs to be accounted for, especially when we're talking about, you know, coaching styles and approach. But these are, if we take, you know, thousands and thousands of people, these are the mean differences we will see between the populations. But there is large variation within males, large variation within females. And yes, there is some overlap. Even if we look at the physical qualities, we see some overlap in the distributions. Uh, But people will say that, oh, if there's any overlap at all, well, then males and females are the same. It's not true. The overlap is at, you know, the tail end of both distributions overlap a little bit. So, for example, we have some research coming out um, that we're working on where we looked at the average untrained differences in untrained males and females in terms of their strength level. And if we look at um, bench press, there is almost a three standard deviation um, difference between the, the standard, the average untrained male and female in terms of how much they can bench press. Now, humans mm. can't think in standard deviations, but if you had the graph, that means you'd line it up that our analysis shows that, you know, it's up close to um, three standard deviations. What that means is, in our analysis, about 2.5% of females can bench press more or can bench press the same as the average, the mean male. The average mm. male. So you know what I mean? The very, so that's kind of where you're looking at in terms of distribution. That's a rough kind of simplistic view. But it's only 2.5% of females can bench press more than the average male. Sorry, now, if, if you, you might have you might have mentioned this. Does, this doesn't take training into account. This is just, let's no, say, No, that is untrained. That's an age untrained. sex difference. Wow. That is in untrained individuals. Mm. Okay. It, a lot of this seemed, and correct me now if I'm taking up this the wrong way, a lot of it did seem that, look, when people are looking to take um, sexes as, as a factor of, of coaching or training, yeah, you can. But but the difference within sexes is, is so massive or the heterogeneity of, of individuals within a sex is, is so crazy that, I mean, yeah, you can look at sex, but there's an awful lot of other things here to look at. Like it's and it, you, you may not be it may not be the best use of your time to try and look at sex-based differences when you're looking to optimize somebody's programming, looking at them on a, on an individual level and just treating them the same is, is probably the same way to go. It's kind of yeah, funny you, because... You coach the individual. Hmm. You would never look at a group of men and say, oh, you're a man, so this is how I'm going to train you. Totally. Yeah, no, it, it and it's... 
it's funny. I, I'd imagine a lot of people, and, and I've been to some of your talks that you put on when discussing sex-based differences in training, and the kind of automatic reaction seems to be, even by the look of people's faces, is like, this is very misogynistic or this is very sexist stuff. But like the outcome is the total opposite. It's like, no, we're all individuals. We're all people and you should be treated accordingly, you know? And that's, that's kind of, that's kind of nice if, if nothing else, you know? Yeah. And we, so it's funny, right? So I obviously have gone in and working in an elite female environment now at the moment and people will often ask, and I think to myself, well, what do I think when I go into work with female athletes? Yes, you know, and we could talk and I've done plenty of podcasts and stuff around the effect of the menstrual cycle, the effect of contraceptives and all that mm. stuff is, is important to acknowledge. But people need to get stop thinking that when you work with female athletes, you just need to be concerned about the reproductive system um, yeah. and just get beyond this. So because all that does is put barriers in front of women engaging mm. in sport, engaging in resistance training, engaging in strength training and all these complications that oh. You want to start gym training? Well, you need to know about the effect of your menstrual cycle. What about contraceptive? All this kind of yeah. stuff. You're putting barriers in front of people. And if we kind of say, and I will um, often say, when we look at the evidence, you know, menstrual cycle, probably not all that important when it mm. comes to um, the performance. Contraceptives, still not all that important. There's stuff, yes, there's some nuances we need to be aware of and consider. But it's missing the wood from the trees. That's not what we all the discussion should be around. Um, so when I go into a female environment, what do I think? So am I going in and saying, well, I need to account for menstrual cycle phase in these athletes to make sure we're programmed to that? No, what I'm thinking is, okay, I'm going into a female environment. What I'm probably going to be faced with is they have lower technical ability um, than their male counterparts at the same level. Um, and that is because as a society, we don't provide the same support structures for our female athletes mm. that we do our male athletes. If I go into a male intercounty um, senior team, most likely those individuals on that team have had good athletic development exposure from, you know, the, if they made an under 12 development squad, they, and now they're, say, 20 years of age, they have somewhere, you know, eight years, some gym-based experience. They might have joined a the gym then when they were 14, 15 themselves or they're doing it in school. But I'd be reasonably confident that most of them have lifting experience and have been in the gym a couple of years and that they know how to lift in most most cases. Do I expect the same thing in a, a women's senior in the county team? No, I don't. Because mm. um, they did not afford the same long-term athletic development structures that the males are currently. Um, so you will have people at a senior inter-county level that um, might never have lifted, have very little gym experience, have very naive. So whereas in a male inter-county team, you're spending your time focusing on how can I manipulate the program and to get them stronger. Female team, you can often go in, okay, now we're teaching them how to lift. You know, the, the barrier is we're teaching mm. them how to lift. Um, so I expect it to have lower technical ability um, because of the inequalities in, in support and, and, and sports structures. I'll expect that they may have some hesitancy and deleterious beliefs towards strength training. Now, I think this is changing, but there is some of those fears of, you know, um, women being told, oh, you know, don't lift weights. It'll do X, Y, and Z to you. Mm. Women shouldn't be lifting weights. It'll make them slow and all these kind of beliefs and that. So they might be more hesitant to engage in um, strength and conditioning training because, again, they haven't been told how important it is that they do this from a young age where 
the men have. They've been mm. drilled into them that they should be only recently. Um, now it's probably this. worth worthwhile saying like all these same like. Oh, sure, the most won't help you on the pitch. Like I remember here, and, yeah. and it's like, would you relax, pal? It it, it is yeah. interesting to see that it's the same criticism that that male athletes may have faced only recently. Yeah. Like, this and is a new phenomenon, changed. absolutely. I'd expect that. What would I expect? Uh, then I'd expect okay, the mightn't um, push as heavy, and um, they'll yeah. have to spend more time saying put more weight on the bar, put more weight on the bar, which is is fine. Um, that we we can do that, and I would. Um, what I would expect as well, uh, it's it's a funny thing, and it, it seems female athletes in general are more inquisitive, and males in general, you say go lift that weight, they don't question it, they lift the weight. Females in general, why am I doing this exercise? Why? So you do have to communicate more the benefits or how it's going to translate to improve performance on the pitch to get the buy-in. So there is a different interpersonal approach, um, and the environment is slightly different. I, I find the female environment quite enjoyable in terms of um the kind of energy that's there mm. um but again that just could be the environments i'm exposed to but in general i'll expect it to have less um training age um less technical ability and uh, maybe different attitudes towards snc but that's not you know their fault that's because of societal inequalities and support structures for our female athletes mm. they're the big thing so I, I talk about if we want to move the needle in terms of improving female performance in terms of our athletic performance, it's not going to be found through menstrual cycle based training or some of yeah. these kind of stuff. It's going to be um, really from we give the same support structures to our female athletes that we give to our male athletes that will move the needle the most. Mm. For for example, um, uh, I, was, I was talking to a colleague recently who was going to be draft wanted to uh, a team wanted to consult with them to um, come in and design like their approach to mental um, tracking and phase-based training and all this kind of stuff in, in an elite rugby setting. And that colleague turned around and said, no, I'm not going to do that for you because you don't even feed your players after training. It's no. like <laughs> you're missing the wood from the trees. If you want to improve performance here. Don't pay me big consultancy fees. Give your players food after training. So, you know, these are the type of things you're facing. That's wild. Yeah, no, it's it's kind of crazy. And it's it's a shame because the the, the rise of, let's say, self-professed sounds, sounds very critical. I'm sure very well-intentioned people looking to up their, their skill set, if you want to call it that, on female physiology in terms of like optimizing hormones which i know a very silly thing to even say and and training based on the menstrual cycle i'd like to think it comes from a very positive point of view to, to cater and accommodate for female athletes it, it's based on what you're saying it seems to have done the opposite or is the potential to do the opposite like put them in a box and, and raise par- barriers to participation whereas in reality yeah, it's like raising you say, barriers where we're saying oh don't oh no you're going to be weaker here don't do this you know hmm. your menstrual cycle do this to you where it, it raises barriers like Look, I, I research this area. It is important, but and there's a large project. Um, Kirsty Elliott Sale and colleagues are leading a large. It's called the Femina Project. Huge research study looking at the effect of menstrual cycle phase and um, addressing all the issues with the research date. So it's going to be like high powered, multi site, and um, blood samples, really good, rigorous measures. But the funny thing is, and I joked with them about this that like that, and I have in my thesis this thought experiment because the critique has always been or oh, the menstrual cycle phase must have an, uh, an effect, just the research hasn't been good enough to find it yet. 
mm. where if we take a thought experiment, so let's say we can do this um, ideal or this perfect study, which the Femina project is aiming to do. It's going to be, you know, high powered, lots of everything. It's going to be really expensive, like really mm. expensive to do this. It's going to be logistically a nightmare and it's going to take so many resources. But what do we hypothesize the outcome will be? Do we think that they will find a consistent effect of menstrual cycle phase, i.e. that most of the participants see a reduction in strength in the luteal phase and an increase in strength and measures of performance in the follicular phase? And that's, you know, across the board uniform. Or do we expect that we find a high degree of inter-individual difference that, you know, there's a big difference between participants. Some people are affected a lot, some people less so. Some people are f- affected in the follicular uh, and not in the luteal and vice versa. And intrin cycle variation that, you know, one menstrual cycle is different to the next. Mm-hmm. What is the most likely outcome from that study? And I think most people would say, well, it's the latter. It's the high degree of variation and everything like that. So what does the practical outcomes of that study then become? The recommendations then become you acknowledge that there's a high degree of inter-individual and intracycle variation in those that are affected by the menstrual cycle. In those individuals that do perceive uh, or there is a, an objective difference, you track their menstrual cycle for a long period of time, identify what those patterns are if consistent, and then if consistent patterns are identified, you put in coping strategies um, on an individual basis for that person see if it alleviates or uh, it's the workaround, and then you trial and error it from there. Now, we have a name for that process. That's called coaching. So <laughs> that's what I joke in terms of huge amounts of money and resources are yeah. going to be spent on this um, project, and it will not change diddly squat in terms of practice. From an academic perspective, we need it done just to tick the box, say, look, we've done the perfect study. We now are confident these results Let's take that box and move the hell on and mm. stop doing these studies. Um, from a real world practical applied pr- practitioner perspective, it won't change a thing. But I hope it'll say, look, menstrual cycle, yeah, it's something to consider, but stop worrying so much about it. Stop obsessing over it mm. and get on with doing and focusing on the things that re- will really move the needle in female sport. And to be honest, and, and don't take this as an awkward, but meaning to get another chat with the good Dr. Arthur Lynch about this, that seems to be a fairly consistent issue in sports science. Never mind, like you said, we'll do the perfect study. That's a huge headache as is. Like the the perfect study is like these things are are far more difficult than than the Joe Soap thinks, far more expensive than they think. And the outcomes, like are they going to to have much of an impact? Do you know what I mean? And I've I've spoken to a lot of people who've studied sports science and the even fewer ones who get get a, a career in sports science. And it, I feel like you can become very disillusioned very quickly, a little bit disheartened about the actual real world impact of your of your research. Do you think that's a, an unfair criticism or that's a little bit harsh or, or what do you think about no, that? No, no, I, I don't think so. And I think it's maybe people lacking an appreciation for the role of sports science or applied sports science research mm-hmm. in a way. Like again, and it's laughable sometimes when people um, talk about like evidence-based practice and they won't do something unless it's in a research paper. A lot of the research we do is to understand why stuff works in terms of we see coaches doing stuff in the real world or we see people doing like, again, people blew their, it blows your mind that people like, oh, high volume training improves muscle growth. Um, well, you go back to the golden era of bodybuilding. 
what were they doing? They were doing high reps mm. or they were doing repetition or sets close to failure and they were doing lots of them. And if a muscle wasn't growing, they gave it more volume. And we're like, and then, um, but again, you wouldn't have found a research paper to support that approach back in the day. But it worked. Yeah. We knew it worked. Um, and a lot of the research was then understanding, well, how does it work? Why does it work? Um, so a lot of what we do in sports science research, it's not us coming up with new novel ways to train. Mm. It's we see what's going on in the field or we get questions. It should work. We get questions from the field that coaches are like, I'm doing this. My athletes seem to be getting better. I don't understand. I, and then we're seeing, we observe, okay, that person is doing that method. Seems to be, it's an observation. It seems to be working. Let's test it in the lab and see, does it work mm. compared to what we know already works, the traditional method. So let's test this new one, validate it against. And that process takes a couple of years. Um, but then we come back and say, yeah, no, we test that. That does work. We confirm it does work. And sometimes we're like, no, it doesn't work. It's, you know, we can throw that out or it's no better than what we were already doing. So if you want to do it, go ahead, but don't think you need to be doing this. Mm. So a lot of it's understanding and understanding the mechanisms or why stuff works. Very few it's coming up with, I've come up with this brand new way to train. I'm going to prove that it's the way to train because mm. that's not what we do. That's not our job. Our job is to observe what goes on in the field, understand how um, it works or why it works, or if it doesn't work, test that it works. Or the second one is work um, and problem solve and look at the field. What problems are the coaches and athletes having? What problems do they tell us they need figuring out? And we as the researchers design studies to figure out and help answer that question, that problem they have. That's our job. So, you know, a lot of our job is won't change practice, real-world practice uh, as such, um, because it's understanding what real-world practices probably work and don't work. So mm. we do see things. Like I think um, foam rolling, for example, it's still used, but we probably understand that it's not um, as good as people thought it was. We proved that mm. it's not as, as good as people thought it was. Ice baths, I don't think there's um, used wildly because people start to realize that, oh, you know, in the off-season, we've seen, like, recovery periodization become a thing at a high level. That You know, so these are real-world things where, oh, everyone takes ice baths. Oh, we realize ice baths aren't great if muscle hypertrophy is the goal. So people stop taking them in the off-season when adaptation is the goal. But in-season, when it's just performance is the primary goal we're chasing they'll use them again so i think we do see stuff that moves um sees practice the biggest issue in terms of probably our research impact in real world practice is not the research itself it's our ability to communicate and engage with stakeholders mm. um many researchers probably lack the ability to disseminate and communicate their evidence and the research um to a high level um, or to translate that into actual practical outcomes for coaches that they can take away. So the likes, well, we are seeing that change. We're seeing more researchers going on podcasts, more researchers engaging on social media, and mm. that will take time. But, you know, it's not the research is the issue. It's probably our ability to communicate and translate it is one of our limiting factors. Mm. I understand. It, you, you do totally see it. And it's, it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword. Like social media, I feel like it's been great for disseminating a, quote-unquote evidence-based information at the same time it, it creates a platform for people to abuse that title or that label or it, it somebody who maybe speaks very well speaks very confidently may may not have a clue what the actual research says or what it means to actually do research i feel like it is a bit of a double-edged sword but the likes of 
Milo Wolf, who we had on the podcast recently, just got his his PhD in sports science and is doing is kind of balancing that very fine line between being dramatic and flashy and also being jacked mm. and strong, but being very evidence based. So it's I suppose it's it's just an emerging emerging part of the field. Uh, just out of curiosity, is that is that taught in in these undergraduate courses? Like I know you're you're very much on the S and C side of things, but is there an increased emphasis on science communication? I know in my course in DCU there, there wasn't, and the work I ended up doing in DCU was very much science communication. And I think it was just a stroke of luck that I found myself into the role, and I, I thought I was maybe a little bit okay at it. I, I don't think so. I try to integrate it into my modules a lot, so students mightn't appreciate it at the time, but I put a huge emphasis on public speaking ability mm-hmm. um, in, in my modules, and they have to public speak quite a lot. And that's just, well, if they want a coach, they need to be able to command um, a group totally. of athletes in terms of command their attention. But I often say the ability for you to stand in front of a room, articulate yourself well, to be comfortable and to um, hold an audience like that, that ability will get you jobs that you don't deserve. Um, <laughs> we all work with people who are completely incompetent, but my God, can they talk and they present themselves well mm. and they're articulate, so they hide in plain sight. Or there's other people who are really good at their job, but they're just bad communicators or bad presenters. And then we, if we see someone real nervous and presenting poorly, we assume that they don't know what they're talking about. We yeah. assume that they're not confident in what they're saying. So you see people that, and it's difficult because to be a good researcher is not the same skill set as to be a good communicator. Totally. Different yeah. skill sets. Um, like Milo, I've published some research with Milo. He's a colleague of mine. He's a good example of someone that can, can do it all. Um, but the traditionally, you know, research and science communication has been seen as two separate fields, as in it was the job of the research to the researcher and it was job of the, you know, the research office or the communications offices to disseminate that research. So mm-hmm. they were seen as distinct fields. I think we do need to start bringing it closer together um, and getting, you know, people trained because again, public speaking is a skill. Um, it's, I can think back to my first, um, major conference I publicly spoke at, um, in an academic perspective was RCSI in front of about 200 medical doctors and my leg was control, shaking uncontrollably. And, Mm. you know, I get the, that kind of raspy, you know, stammer in, in, in the voice and or shakiness in the voice and you can hear it where now, again, maybe it's arrogance. I don't know. I'll happily get up in front of, um, any crowd now and, I probably come across as reasonably articulate, I, I would hope, but it's that's practice. That's just exposure. Mm. Um, and I've seen so many students shake and uncontrollably be nervous the first time to get up. And then after a couple of years, they're calm, good presenters. Um, and that is an invaluable skill across all walks of life that you can. We talk a lot about transferable skills. That's one of the major transferable skills. Totally. But the amount of people that, um, are public speakers like have you ever done public speaking training um i've been lucky enough that a few initiatives that i was involved with with the university i had to do public speaking training um didn't want it didn't think i needed it but then when i got in yeah. there i was like oh this is actually really good so if it's something you're shit at maybe get trained how to do it better yeah, yeah you know great. I mean? that's it's great not, advice. absolutely not a bad idea totally uh, we we got Maybe not a tiny bit sidetracked, but they're they're all really really great topics that I, I'm glad that we got to to speak on. I'd like to, if we can, because I understand we're kind of coming coming close to our time. If we can bring it back to the sex based categorization in sport, I feel like you've done a very good job at at 
laying out maybe the reason this sex-based categorization exists and also not issues in it, but I suppose areas where it's a level playing field and we are treating people as individuals. I know when, when I first kind of reached out to have, to have this conversation, it was framed largely by accommodating people who may not fit into these sex-based categories as as it's seen in the traditional sense, or I suppose we can talk about accommodating transgender athletes. I'm not sure if you're aware there was, there's been an issue recently in Canadian powerlifting where there was a trans woman who had been competing. And I think the issue actually stemmed more around bullying and harassment as opposed to a trans woman competing because some of the lifters were maybe upset about it and spoke out about it, spoke out about it in a, in a very unprofessional way, like calling people out on Twitter and were subsequently banned. And the feeling or the kind of, and again, outrage on social media is a very, very strong component in, in this conversation. The feeling was that, oh, we're getting banned for speaking out against this. Whereas in reality, no, you're banned for harassing fellow members. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Based on your research, based on the the categorization that we've outlined, again, very, very high level, how do you find or how do you envisage we can accommodate all athletes over time, particularly in the transgender sphere? And I know it depends very much on the sport. Do you know what I mean? Because the we find in different sports that the disparity between male and female performance is lessened and some maybe like powerlifting, for example, is heightened because there's not a whole lot of technical parts to it. And correct me if I'm wrong on that. It's, it's, it's fairly, not that it's fairly based on biology, but like, it doesn't matter how good the squat bench deadlift I'm, um, if Barry Biggett is coming in, he's beating me because <laughs> physiology wise, he just dunks on me left, right and center. Do you know what I mean? And like, that's a kind of a separate point as well, or an argument against sex-based categorization is that, well, how, if, if it's unfair for me to go in and compete against women how is it fair that barry pickett comes in and i will never win a competition i'll never get on the podium because he's there do you know what i mean i know i threw i kind of threw the kitchen sink at you there now but maybe to bring it back to accommodating transgender athletes or people with with different different needs if that's fair to say yeah so it it is a very complex um issue Mm. um because it's it's multifaceted and you're taking in you know you I look at things from the biological perspective. I look at things from the that, that more side of I don't look at it so much from the philosophical side of stuff or even the, the social sciences side of stuff. So I'm looking mm. at it more from the, the physiological side of things. But it, it is complex. But again, I, I, I've no skin in the game really this way, in, in, in this in this one. But I think the biggest issue around this is people's maybe inability to have uh, objective conversations on the the topic and you know it is it's deeply inflammatory for a lot of people and there's a lot of emotion um involved in this because it's such a a complex um issue for the the trans athletes themselves and for for anyone any of the stake relevant stakeholders in it that being said i think there are some you know objective realities that you just you might be uncomfortable with but you can't get away from is Males and females are different. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a huge difference in performance abilities. As I talked about earlier, we see these sex-based differences that happen, begin in the prenatal phase. Children undergo a mini puberty and then puberty just widens that out. That you end up with, when you look at biological male and female al- adults, males on average are 
bigger, faster, stronger, more powerful, and will perform better than females in pretty much all sports where there is an endurance or a strength and power based um, um, component to it. So that is an undeniable fact. And people will make the argument, yeah, but some, you know, women are stronger than some men, therefore there's no difference. As I said, that's just a lack of understanding of um, distribution curves and how statistics work. Hmm. We know that when we look at the normal distribution, overlap of distributions doesn't mean equivocation of distributions. Um, so there are quite quite different on average. So, and I think Ross Tucker has a good take on all this in terms of when we look at sport in general, there's kind of three main areas that we need to consider sport under. I think we can all agree that we want sport to be fair. Mm. We want sport to be inclusive. And we want sport to be as safe as possible for the athletes involved in it. Now, the the safety um, one is sport dependent. You know, I think in combat sports, rugby sports, anything that's a contact sport, there's a huge safety element and um, there's a, a huge risk there with the allowance of um, transgender women to um, to compete. So that's that's it. So if we talk about the fairness and inclusivity side of things, if the problem is you can't have both, we want to have them all, but we probably can't have both um, yeah. in our current categorization of sport. And that is because if we say, you know, okay, fairness is our biggest priority, well, then trans women can't compete because they do have an unfair advantage over cis women when it comes to sport. Well, that aside... Men, men and women, weight categories, skill categories are, are out the window as well, if you want it to be fair. And all these different categories exist for, for very good reasons. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we have that. Um, this second thing then is inclusivity. If we want inclusivity to be the priority, well, then, yeah, of course, we let um, trans athletes compete in, in the, in the um, category which they um, identify with but we sacrifice fairness to do it. So it's up to probably sports or society as a whole to say, well, what do we prioritize in sport? Mm. Is it fairness or is it inclusivity? Because you can't really have both at the same time under our current categorization of sport. Um, so that that's the big issue you face. Now, that's an uncomfortable reality for many people, but unfortunately that is reality we have. Mm. Um, when we look at sport and categorization, I suppose we ask ourselves then, what do we want from sport categorization? And there's three kind of components, principles of categorization. You want fairness of category assessment. And that means everyone should be assessed in the same way for inclusion or into a particular subcategory. Mm. You want verifiability that a category assessment should be objectively verifiable and checkable. And then you want practicability that category assessment should be practical and relatively simple. That we, you know, we're not starting to do, you know, 20 different categories for every different sport or whatever mm, it may be. Yeah. So again, I do not know what the answer is. Um, there are arguments around, you know, do we create, you leave a cis female category, cis mm. woman category, and then an open category. Do you create a separate transgender category for people to, to do it in? Um, so these are maybe some of the potential arguments that, that goes forward there. Mm. Um, so, you know, it it is difficult, but 
I think anyone that denies that there's a biological basis for sex categorization in sport, that's not an evidence-based position. There are strong evidence for why we, we stratify sport based upon sex categories mm-hmm. and why that's arguably probably the fairest way to, to stratify sport. Um, but with that acknowledged, so there is the biological basis for it. And um, the question is then, you know, fairness, inclusivity, safety, what do we prioritize as a society? And what do we um, want our sport to look like? That's a difficult question. And that's a question I don't have an answer for. for, uh, You know, I'd have probably personal opinions. But that's maybe a societal um, question we need Mm. to ask. But the idea that, you know, it's when I hear people say there is no difference between the sex. There is no, they have no advantage. Uh, On average, there is a a difference. Mm. People are like, oh, well, the testosterone is suppressed to... um, to female levels therefore it doesn't make difference yeah but they still have um stronger bones tendons whatever and even when we look at some of the testosterone suppression research um where people have undergone um testosterone suppression for a long period males undergone testosterone um, suppression for even one to three years it's consistently shown after one year that um you see about a 5% reduction in muscle mass and strength. Mm. Um, but that's in individuals who are not athletes. That's just in general population. Um, would we envision, again, if someone was training during that time and still lifting weights and doing all this other stuff, would we expect a bigger or smaller decrease in muscle yeah. strength and size? I don't think anyone would expect you to lose more strength and size if you trained during that period. So yeah. when we consider that, I talked about a 40% difference on average in mean body mass and a 50-60% difference in strength um, between the sexes on average. Well, then the testosterone progression doesn't negate that um, innate male advantage mm. that we see there. So, so and it, it only looks at, um, and given that, depending on the, the federation and the rules, some of the barrier or some of the limits I've seen is that um, the testosterone must be suppressed to a level below i think it's five nanomoles per um, liter per deciliter i can't mem- remember what it is it's 10 10 nanomoles for at least 12 months prior to and during competition yeah some of them have that and i think some of them have said even five where oh, okay. the the average um so that depending on where it is that somewhere can be between 10 to 20 times the average level do we see mm. in, a, in a female uh, in a cis in a cis female so Again, to round it up, um, because it is complex, This it's not a simple answer, hmm. but there are some sim- um, simple facts we can't get away from it. There is an inherent um, advantage in um, for transgender athletes who are transitioning from male to female. That advantage is not negated by long-term testosterone suppression, it would hmm. seem. So again, it comes back to the fairness, inclusivity, safety um, domains and as a society and as individual sports, what we value most um, and think our sports should be. Hmm. Yeah, I, I have nothing to really to really add to that. It, it, that kind of, it, it is an uncomfortable reality. I, I don't doubt that we will, we will make progress on this as, as it's as it's increasingly prevalent. Like this is not a new phenomenon either, like the transgender athletes and their participation in sport. Um, like I alluded to with, with social media, like it, I think at times it's made out to be a much bigger issue than it is, and and people are attaching rationales and narratives to it that are very very unhelpful. Unhe- um, 
So how the how the issue is kind of communicated matters a whole lot, I think, as well. The just a, maybe just a thought that I had before coming on was it's kind of ironically at an elite level or at an Olympic level, potentially accommodations can be made because athletes maybe are supported or have the resources or the framework is there. Like let's say in terms of, of testing on a local level, like popping down to Rathcoffey GAA club inclusion there is, is much, much more difficult. And it's, it's potentially a lot more hard hitting because it's just talking about inclusion and, and acceptance and all this. And I, I'm not, proposing any sort of solution it's just i suppose it's interesting to comment on and yeah that's that's about yeah. it and i suppose but there is always the argument then in terms of what type of sport are we talking about because i think we can often get caught up in discussing sport only in elite or competitive environment totally. we forget the utility of sport and social settings mm. um so is it a case you know it's it might be a blanket ban but it might be you know in the competitive realm you know, there might be social um sport or recreational sport um that would be more appropriate um or where leeways could be could be made. Hmm. Absolutely. No, I totally agree. David, we're coming close to our, our time limit. I and I, I know you've as we said, you've you're juggling a lot of plates at the moment. If anybody wants to get in touch with you or if you have any services that you offer, how can people find you? How can people get a hold of you? Yeah. So um my Instagram handle is Synapse Performance, S Y N A P S E Performance. I should just change that to my name at some point. Um, it's bad <laughs> branding. Um, at David underscore Synapse on uh, Twitter. But in general, um, if you just Google David Nolan DCU, I'll pop up somewhere. Super. David, thanks a million for hopping on. Pleasure, Connor. Thanks very much for having me.